So today we are going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 13, 1 through 14, 27. And we have worked through the first 12 chapters. We've worked through some of the most familiar content in the book of Isaiah. Um, chapters 1, you have the come, let us reason, I will make you white as snow, that familiar verse. Chapter 6, you have what we just sung and talked about. Um, chapter 7, you have the Emmanuel prophecy, the virgin birth prophecy, pretty well known. Um, chapter 9, you have for unto us a son is born, another prophecy that's pretty well known. And then chapter 11, you have the shoot from the stump or the root of Jesse, depending on which verse you're looking at. There are different phrases that are used. So we've worked through a lot of familiar content up to this point. Chapter 13 is where your reading plan dies. Let's just be honest. Um, This is the part of the book that we are entering that if you look and flip through, it's going to go all the way to chapter 36. And then in 36, you kind of breathe a sigh of relief as you get back into some narrative and start to read again. And that's where a lot of us kind of get re-engaged in the book again. And we can keep going pretty well because you have 36 to 39 is basically all narrative. And then 40 to about 54, 55, you have all this stuff about the servant and you have the famous chapter 53 with the suffering servant. So like that kind of keeps us interested. And then at the end of the book, the last few chapters, especially 65 and 66, but basically 56 through 66, especially those last six, um, all that is about like the new heaven, new earth, um, God making all things right. So like that, that gets really exciting. We're entering this kind of doldrums in the in the middle that, um, to to be honest, like myself included, you read through it and you're like, what? <laughs> like you're hitting you're going to hit a bunch of oracles, a bunch of woes, and what I want to do before we dig into thirteen one is I'm just going to take some time and help us get our feet under us. I had to do this in my own prep. It took me a long time to feel like I had a grasp of what's going on in the book and why Isaiah is pausing after chapter 12 and taking so long to get back into the narrative. Because again, 13 all the way through 35 is effectively oracles and woes, that entire section. So as we think about getting into this section, I want to take some time here. And um, this is going to be probably one of the more lengthy introductions that I've ever done. Uh, it, it's honestly half of my sermon is just helping us get to know what's going on. You, you will see why, though. Um, so kind of doing a little bit of a rewind here. In chapters 1 through 5, you had an introduction. And then in chapter 6, you had Isaiah's call to ministry. I talked a little bit about how the book of Isaiah is formatted a little bit like a movie. In chapters 1 through 5, you have like this intense opening um, dramatic action scene that ends with kind of a cliffhanger. And the point of one through five is that it's like God's judgment is coming. The people have lived the opposite of how he called them to live. There, chapter five ends with the, the parable of the vine dresser. He's put all this work and love into them. And what they've done is they've produced the opposite of what they were supposed to produce. So he has promised them judgment and exile. And that's how, and that's how it ends. So it's like this dramatic movie introduction and then like the screen fades to black and then you have chapter six and Isaiah is called to ministry and you feel like the book's starting all over again. Like that's how it's designed. And then in chapter seven, we jumped forward a little bit and it's a few years after his call to ministry. You have not the next king, but the king that had was in chapter six, his call to ministry was in the year that King Uzziah died. And then Uzziah's grandson is the one that is the content of chapter seven where the narrative picks up there. And then in 7 through 12, 
you have a lot of discussion, a lot of prophecies about this time when Judah was under threat by the northern neighbors of Israel and Syria. And I have to be careful when I say this because there's Syria and Assyria. Um, but Judah is basically under threat from the northern neighbors of Syria and Israel who are threatening them and trying to force Judah into an alliance against Assyria, which Syria is the big Assyrian empire out in your way of the east over here, coming and kind of absorbing lands to the west of itself. And Judah does not agree with that. And the problem that Isaiah is pointing out is that Ahaz, the current king of Judah, is looking to the Assyrian Empire rather than to God. So in 7 through 12, you have a lot of talk about that that's going on. And then all of a sudden, you get to chapter 13. And we just pause. And we're going to spend a bunch of time in oracles, which are basically statements of judgment against nations, though we will see actually there are oracles against Judah and against Israel. So it's more just a statement of judgment as an oracle. Then you have a bunch of woes as well. Um, which we've we've seen some woes already. So as we get into this middle section here, I just want to pause and say, what is going on? <laughs> the first step that you have to take in answering what is going on is answer the question, what is the context? What has come before it? And what is Isaiah trying to accomplish with this giant section in the middle here? What is he trying to accomplish and why on earth spend this length of time in what feels like, at times, repetitive material. So, um, as I said earlier, chapters 1 through 5, you have this introduction, this background information. The people turned away from the Lord. Their worship is summarized as empty and fake. Their leadership and society is corrupt, wicked, and godless. That's basically a summary of what you have in chapters 1 through 5. And... They have turned, as we see in chapter 5, and we'll keep seeing throughout the rest of the book, they have turned to every idol and every worldly power except to the Lord. We read in 5, like I mentioned earlier, that God poured all his love and care to his people, his vineyard, but they have rejected him and produced not the good grapes, is the wording used, not the good grapes one, one would expect, but wild grapes. And this word wild is inedible, useless grapes. So he was expecting them to, to produce grapes that would be good for something. And they produced completely useless fruit. So because of this, he is, as the judge, justly sending them punishment and exile. They will, in effect, be cast out from his presence. But even in the midst of chapters 1 through 5, which are, by and large, condemnation and judgment, even in the midst of these, you see visions and promises of hope, salvation, and restoration. And you see these in little, bright, passages of hope at the beginning of chapter 2 and then the majority of chapter 4 because chapter 4 is really short. Uh, but you see small, bright passages of hope. Though they have abandoned him, what these passages are saying is that God will not abandon his people. He has a plan and a future for them. Judgment will come, but so too will cleansing, restoration, and union with God. We see this especially in the passage of chapter 4, which gives this beautiful picture of basically a marriage between God and his people in a div- in, um, d- divine presence that is used, you're using the imagery of the exodus with the cloud and the fire and God's presence with his people and says that will be over everybody, no longer excluded in the center of camp, but everybody will be part of that presence. One day we read 
in uh, chapter 2, the mountain of the Lord will be where all his people and all nations will come for teaching and live together in peace. And then in chapter 6, we saw Isaiah's call to ministry, which was, as I've mentioned a few times, a foreshadowing of what needs to happen to the people. At a time when King Uzziah was dying and the threat of the Assyrian Empire was rising, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on his throne, the supreme ruler of the world. So at the time when the leadership of Judah was falling, um, Uzziah was dying, we know that the next leadership um, was worse and worse. So the leadership of Judah is falling, the empires of the world are rising. At that time is when Isaiah sees God, supreme ruler over all, on his throne. Isaiah saw the Lord for who he is and saw that one day the glory of the Lord will be seen in all the earth. But he saw also, as we see in his reaction, Isaiah saw that his greatest need was to be cleansed and to be forgiven by this king of kings. And having been granted forgiveness, to joyfully serve him, placing his trust in the Lord. The message Isaiah is given to say, after he joyfully volunteers for this message from the Lord, the message Isaiah is given to say to Judah is a message of judgment. Just as we read in chapter 5, the people will be punished in exile. They will hear and see God's message, but they will respond with hardness of heart and will not repent. Isaiah is told that the people will not listen to him. His success will not be measured by their response, but by his faithfulness. The people will face all but total destruction, but we are told at the very end of this dark message of judgment, we are told at the very end, the stump will remain, and the holy seed is the stump. And we've talked many, many times about how this holy seed is actually kind of a purposeful, multi-layered word. The holy seed does mean the people of God, at least a remnant of them, will remain. God will never fully exterminate his people. But it also specifically refers to the holy seed, the line of David, the royal line, that God has promised there will be a son of David who will sit on the throne forever. And what he is saying by saying the holy seed remains is that that promise is not nullified, though you have been unfaithful to me. I will bring purging, but also cleansing, and I will keep my promise. In the next chapters, 7 through 12, we see the reality of this message begin as we jump a few years forward in time to, again, Uzziah's grandson, Ahaz, who is the new king of Judah at the time. He is facing a threat, as I mentioned earlier, from the alliance of his northern neighbors, Israel and Syria, attempting to force him into an alliance against the Assyrian Empire. But rather than turning to, God, rather than turning to God's help, Ahaz instead turns to the Assyrian Empire itself. And we read I think it was over in 2 Kings, that he actually gave treasures from God's temple to the, Babylon, or the Assyrian Empire. I'm talking about Babylon. I'm going to get there later in the sermon. Um, he gave treasures from God's temple to the Assyrian leader and to empire, which is basically effectively a cultural way of saying, I'm taking treasures from my God and giving them to your God because I trust your God more than mine. And that's when Isaiah comes to meet him to give a message. Isaiah meets him as he is preparing for the coming siege of Israel and Syria and tells him to be careful, to trust in the Lord. We don't know if the timing of that message was before or after Ahaz had already reached out to the Assyrian Empire, but either way, the message was clear to Ahaz, that Isaiah knew what was going on, knew what was in his heart, that God had told him what was going on, and that Isaiah was warning him to be careful, trust in the Lord, not in the Assyrian Empire. And Isaiah 
gives Ahaz multiple prophecies and promises that tell Ahaz that God is with them and that this threat will not last. But Ahaz refuses to listen. In response, God, through Isaiah, tells Ahaz that the Assyrian Empire will help Ahaz this time. But they will soon turn on Judah, and only an act of the Lord's divine deliverance will free them. Throughout these chapters, 7 through 12, Ahaz and the people are constantly given the question, in whom will you trust? The Assyrian Empire or God? Will you trust your own strength, your own plans, and human wisdom, or will you trust in the Lord and what he has told you is true? In chapter 10, the Lord made clear that even the powerful Assyrian Empire is not stronger than him. They, too, are held accountable to him. And they are only allowed, as we read multiple times, they are only allowed to do what he allows. He is using them as a tool of his judgment against his people. But that judgment will come to an end when God decides it is done, and then his judgment will turn right on the Assyrian Empire, who has, even at, even in their acting as a tool of his judgment, they have rejected him and ignored him and not acknowledged him. He, God, will deliver his people. His, even the people who had rejected him from the hands of the Assyrians to show that he is the one in whom they should trust. Then we read in 11 that he extends this promise, this promise of trust and deliverance, and that he is Lord of all. He extends this promise to say that one day there will come another son of Jesse, a greater David, who will be perfect and holy. He will be the perfect king and he will be filled with the spirit. He will rule in righteousness and justice and peace. He will live perfectly in the fear of the Lord, and be perfect where Ahaz and all the other rulers, even David, the man after God's own heart, he'll be perfect where they all fail. He will gather all God's people, he will end all oppression, and he will free all captives. One day there will be a deliverance even greater than that of Gideon's day, and one day there will be an exodus even greater than that out of Egypt. These claims that God is king of all kings, that he holds even the most powerful empires accountable, that he knows the future and holds the fate of these empires in his hands, that he will preserve his people through the crashing waves of competing empires, even as he holds his own people accountable, and that he will one day set a perfect king on the throne of David and bring peace, gathering all people to himself. These claims, these are what drive the chapters of 13 through 35. From the timestamps of 14, verse 28, and 20, verse 1. In 14, 28, which is actually the verse right after the section we're looking at today, in 14, 28, we read, In the year that King Ahaz died. And then an oracle. And then in chapter 20, verse 1, we read, In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyrian, And we know that this was um, a few years into the reign of Hezekiah. So from these timestamps, we know that the content of these chapters was given to the people during the last part of Ahaz's reign and during the beginning of his son Hezekiah's reign. During this time, in light of Ahaz and the people turning to the Assyrian Empire rather than the Lord during the conflict that Judah was facing, Isaiah is, in effect, zooming out in space and time to show that God, God is the real king, greater than any empire, greater than any emperor. And he is showing God at work. 
in time and space, future, past, and present, to show that they can and should trust God. So when we read all these oracles and these woes, we have to think of the history of what's happening. Ahaz had turned to the Assyrian Empire and trusted them rather than God to help him against his northern neighbors. They had helped him. But Isaiah said that that misplaced trust is going to turn on you and Assyria is going to turn on you. And what you're doing is exemplifying exactly what all the leadership has done before you, which is turn away from God and not trust him. You're trusting your own strength, your own wisdom, your own resources, your own man-made alliances that you think are going to give you ultimate hope and security. And that can only be found in God. So what Isaiah is doing is in this time period at the the end of Ahaz's life, the beginning of his son Hezekiah's reign, he is constantly giving messages to the people. I don't think all these oracles were given at one point. I think this was a consistent ministry that Isaiah had to this people saying, will you trust the Lord? Where is your trust? What are you looking to for hope and to security? These chapters, chapters 13 through 27 break up into three series of oracles. They are broken up by chapters 13 through 20, 21 to 23, and then 24 to 27. And each of these three series is broken up into five oracles. So you basically have 15 oracles. They're going to be happening from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 27. As you go through these sections, the content moves from the present or the near future all the way to the last day. As you keep moving through these sections, the content moves into the future last day. And we read that actually a little bit um, in even chapter 13, and I'll talk about that. The headings, as you go through chapters 13 through 27, the headings become less clear. Everything seems to merge together. And I think what's going on is that from Isaiah's perspective, what he is given from God about the near and immediate future is much more clear than what he is given about the end, the last day the ultimate future. He knows the end of the story. He knows how it's all going to end. He's just not as clear about the details. Uh, it kind of sounds like the book of Revelation. There's, there's a reason that Isaiah is compared to many other parts of the Bible as well. Chapters 37, or sorry, chapters 13 through 27, by and large, are very zoomed out and future-facing, though they do contain, contain some near-term prophecies, and we will talk about one of those today. Um, what chapters 28 through 35 then do, and they are the second part of this giant section in the middle here, chapters 28 through 35 follow these series of oracles with a series of their own of woes that answer the question of the skeptic that is left hanging at the end of 13 to 27. Because 13 to 27 are dealing much more in the future, much more forward-facing, a lot of talk about the last day, and especially as you get to 24 to 27, it's a lot of the stuff way in the future. So the skeptic is sitting there, well, how can we trust that? Like, all this stuff you're saying is beyond our lifetime. There, there are three near-term fulfillments here in 13 to 27 to answer that question a little bit during the 13 to 27 chapters, but what 28 to 35 do is they pick up that question, that concern more in earnest, and they deal with a a bigger cluster of more near-term fulfillments to answer that question of the skeptic. And what especially chapters 28 to 35 do, but we will see this theme throughout all of these 13 to 35, what especially the second... um, Section, though, 28 to 35, what it especially does is prove that God 
because he can be trusted with the present and with the near term, he also can be trusted with the distant and what is well beyond our lifetime, that he can be trusted for all of time. You will notice, though, and we're going to talk about this right in chapter 13, you will notice, though, that Isaiah cannot talk very long about the current or the near future without talking about the far future. He just, he can't help himself. He quickly transitions into future events and talking about the future and the last day. The reason for this, and what I would say is really the, if you want like one main point of 13 to 35, why Isaiah can't talk very long about the current or the very new future without pointing it to the final day and the end of time is that what he's constantly saying is that God can be trusted. You are going to see him fulfill his word. Now you're going to see him fulfill his word in 20 years or whatever it is with the near-term fulfillments. And because he consistently proves himself, you can trust him for all that he says about the end of time as well. He has written the end of the story and you can trust him that that is how the story will end. So that is the overarching point of 13 to 35. In fact, as we get back into the narrative in the next chapter, 36, we're going to see this point made very clear in a story and a narrative that happens during Hezekiah's day, who is Ahaz's son. Today, though, as we begin our dive into the oracles and the woes of 13 to 35, we are going to look at chapter 13, 1 through 14, 27. And this is the first of the five oracles in the first series of oracles, and that's kind of a mouthful right there. Because remember, 13 to 27, you have three series of oracles, and each series has five oracles. So we're just dealing with the first one oracle of the first five. And just by way of kind of where we're going to be going forward, um, I'm dealing with the first one today, and then we're going to deal with the rest of the, the rest of the four of this first group next week, and then the, the next two series of oracles, we're going to do one week on each series of oracles. So we are going to be moving pretty through, but again, that's because these oracles are all working together in the message that they're giving. What's interesting is as you start in 13.1, so again, this very first oracle, right after we've dealt with all of this narrative and content about um, Judah and their alliance with the Assyrian Empire as they deal with the threat of Judah and Syria. So basically the major players right now are Judah, Israel, Syria, and Assyria. But then you go to 13.1 and the oracle concerning Babylon. Who? Like now we have another nation that we need to talk about. So why does 13.1 talk about Babylon and not Assyria like you would expect? That's the first question you have to answer as you're getting into the content here. So why start with Babylon? I think Isaiah starts with Babylon rather than Assyria because he has already prophesied that the Lord will deliver Judah from the Assyrian threat that will come. We saw this in 8, 8 through 10 and then multiple times in chapter 10. Isaiah knows that Judah will be overthrown in exile, but he also, through God's um, insight and God's vision, he sees into the future and sees that Assyria will not be the one to do this. Assyria will not be the one to overthrow Judah and bring the people into exile. Babylon is already at this time challenging Assyria for dominance. And Isaiah, with divine assistance, sees that it will be Babylon who causes the destruction and exile of the people, not Assyria. Babylon, then, is the real threat, the real superpower. Babylon is also, ironically, the symbol of humanity's attempt to find security, stability, and trust in their own resources 
and reject God. Remember what the major question of this whole section 13 to 35 is? Who are you trusting? What better place to start than with what is essentially the stereotypical antithesis or opposite of trusting in God than to start with Babylon? And why this is so, why it is this um, example and this really banner of rejecting God is that the Tower of Babel all the way back in Genesis 11 was built in the land of Shinar. And we read this in Genesis 11, 1 through 4. And okay, what does Shinar have to do with Babylonia? Well, the land of Shinar is Babylonia, which is the center of the Babylonian Empire. It's all the same. Babel, the very Tower of Babel, where the people gathered, rather than obeying God's command to spread and be fruitful and multiply, they gathered and said, let us build a tower for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. And that tower, by the way, culturally speaking, was probably a ziggurat, which is a way of them saying, let's make a place where we have decided how we meet with God. That's part of also what the let us make a name for ourselves is, is they're doing everything around how they want to do it. They are trying to make the relationship with God on their terms which is ironic because they're doing literally exactly the opposite of what God had told them to do. So it shows that when they are trying to make this tower, this meeting place with God, like, well, we'll listen to you and we'll we'll meet with you, but we're going to do it on our terms. We're not going to listen to what you're actually saying. So that's where this all began, the Tower of Babel. And now you have the Babylonian Empire here in 13.1 is the first one addressed. We will find out later in Isaiah, in fact, that Hezekiah, just like his father Ahaz, Hezekiah seeks an alliance with the world power rather than trusting God. Only Hezekiah trusts Babylon, not Assyria. Apple doesn't fall very far far from the tree. Hezekiah is judged for this rejection of God and told that Babylon will one day turn on Judah and exile it. History just keeps repeating itself. Ahaz trusts Assyria. Assyria turns on Judah. Hezekiah trusts Babylon. Babylon turns on Judah. Babylon, then, opens up these chapters which focus on the question of trust by pointing backward and forward at the same time to humanity's rejection of God and incessant desire to find security in their own resources. What started at Babel is coming full circle. The people, the descendants of Abraham, who'd been called and chosen out of the people scattered from Babel, have rejected God and through the exile to the Babylonian Empire, we're going to be brought right back to Babel. It's all come full circle due to the rejection of the people from God. What started with the rejection of God at the Tower of Babel is being the people are being brought back to the Babylonian Empire for their rejection of God. So this is, I believe, why he starts with Babylon. And then starting in verse 2, we see that even this superpower, even Babylon, who will exile the people of God, even this empire is held accountable to God and will be overthrown through his act of judgment. We already read uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, so I'm not going to reread them. But throughout this chapter, what's interesting is that in typical Isaiah fashion, you read about this coming destruction of Babylon, and it sounds like an act of judgment framed in like universal, cosmic, supernatural, last day, day of the Lord language. And we see this especially in verses 6 through 13. 
And verse 6, right off the bat, wail for the day of the Lord is near. The destruction from the Almighty will come. And as you keep reading through, like the, the stars are darkened, the earth is trembling. This is all like end of the world language here. You read these verses and you ask yourself, wait, are we, are we still talking about the Babylonian Empire? And then you skip forward into 17 and it says, behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them. Which, like, the Medes, the Medo-Persian Empire, we know, was the one that actually ended up destroying the Assyrian Empire. So now we're jumped back into history. So verse 17, then, seems to make it clear that we are still talking about the Babylonian Empire, even back in the earlier verses. So why the cosmic day of the Lord, end of the world language? The point that Isaiah is making, again and again and again, there's a lot of chapters here, 13 to 35, the point that Isaiah is making constantly is that the God who shows his lordship over all people and empires can be trusted when he speaks of even more distant events like the day of the Lord and the end of all time. When he tells you how the story ends, you can trust him. In chapter 10, we read that the God who delivered his people at Midian and brought them out of Egypt can be trusted also to deliver them from the Assyrians. And here in chapter 13, in verse 19, it reads, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. The same God who worked at Midian and Egypt will work in Jerusalem. The same God who worked in Sodom and Gomorrah and judged them will also judge the Babylonian Empire. And what's also interesting here is we see a reversal from a theme that's actually been used in the book of Isaiah. If you turn back real quick to Isaiah chapter 5, the end of that introductory section of Isaiah. Isaiah 5, which remember opens with the parable about the vine dresser. God was the perfect vine dresser who lovingly cared for his vineyard, and yet they produced useless fruit. And because of it, he is bringing or sending judgment against them. In 5 verse 26, it says, He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly and speedily they come. And then it talks about this basically superhuman army that's going to come and exile the people, which is, again, just like Isaiah, to, to use all this like supernatural, super um, language here. So this, this signal, though, this signal calls for the nations to come and bring judgment against God's people against Judah. And then you read over in 13, chapter 2, on a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry out loud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. That signal phrase that called a nation to come and judge and exile God's people, which, by the way, that nation ended up being Babylon, that signal then turns and becomes God's call for Babylon to be overthrown. We saw this with Assyria. In the language that was used in chapters 7 through 12, we saw that the hand of the Lord was outstretched in judgment against his people, but then once Assyria had brought the proper amount of judgment as God saw fit, that hand turned and then judged the Assyrian Empire because they too are held accountable to God. So we see this same kind of turn of phrase here with the Babylonian Empire in that they were brought with the signal of God to bring judgment to God's people, but then they also are held under the judgment of God with that same exact word, that signal then turning on them. All people, the point being made, is that all people are held accountable to God. And then you get to chapter 14. In a real brief section here, 14, 1 to 2, 
and it talks about the restoration of Jacob. The all people being held accountable to God is not the only theme that we see again from earlier in the book of Isaiah. 14.1 transitions back into the promise that God will not forget his people. Just like in the midst of all the judgment sections that have come in the rest of the book up till now, you have all of a sudden these like bright glimmers of hope and the promises that God will fulfill for his people. You have that here as well in 14.1-2. After the judgment on Babylon, we read that God will bring the people back to their land and the people, even from other nations, will choose to join them. God will, in fact, reverse the roles of history and the restored Israel. His people will become the world leader and other nations will come to them. What is being said is that the exile will be over. God's people will return from Babel and come back to the promised land. And then you get into 14, 3 through 23, which is a taunt against the king of Babylon. Uh, taunt is how the word is translated here in verse 4. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. What this means is it's a, a, essentially a proverbial victory song is what's being sung here. And the song, interestingly, has enough has a few similarities with Exodus 15. This, this song keeps coming back here. Um, you remember how in um, chapter 12, you had a song of victory, a song of deliverance that followed the promise of the Messiah and the Emmanuel and that God will deliver his people and that God will have a greater exodus and bring all of his people back from wherever they're scattered and gather them to himself. Um, After that promise, you have this chapter 12, this song that echoes the song of Exodus 15. The song of Exodus 15 was sung right after the first exodus out of Egypt. Then you have in chapter 12, You have a song that sounds like that song right after the promise of a greater exodus. And then in here, where you have the exile is over, the people are delivered and brought back from exile, you have another exodus song. I think it's so cool that this theme keeps coming back. What is being said in this song is that the oppressor who thought himself high and mighty is brought down to Sheol or the underworld. It is similar to songs seen later in Revelation 18 through 19 that is sung at the final destruction of the final or proverbial Babylon. Because really, just as we saw with Babel, and now it's back to the Babylonian Empire, this Babylon theme is really just a copy and paste broken record of the center of rejection of God. And in Revelation, there will be another Babylon. Who knows what its name will be? But it will be the newest and the last iteration of Babylon that God will overthrow. And we also see in um, this song that the enemy of God, or sorry, I lost my place in my notes here. Um, In verses 4 through 11, we read in this song of victory that God will destroy Babylon and that the earth will rejoice at this. The king of Babylon will go go down to Sheol and be greeted by all the other kings and rulers that God has brought down there as well throughout history is effectively what's going on in 4 through 11 there in chapter 14. And then verses 12 through 21 continue this song against the king of Babylon. And verses 12 through 21 are interesting because they're actually similar to verses over in Ezekiel. So I'm not going to read the entirety of both of these sections, but if you want to flip over to Ezekiel and just kind of look at that while I'm talking about that, you're going to notice some similarities here. Ezekiel 28 is a song against the leader of Tyre. 
And then here in Isaiah 14, it's a song against the king or the leader of Babylon. Both here and in Ezekiel, the leader believes himself to be equal to the God Most High. We see this as you look in Isaiah 14, starting in verse 13. It says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high, and I will sit in the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. We'll get back to what some of that means in a little bit. Um, But essentially what's going on is that this king is basically thinking, I am so high and mighty, I've accomplished so much, my empire is so big, I have become basically a god. And this king has begun to equate himself with God, not just any god. Through the language there, he's equating himself with God most high. And this king here in Isaiah 14 and and the king or the leader in Ezekiel 28, what we read of both of them is that because of this pride, because of this arrogance, because of this rejection of God and thinking themselves to be God, the actual God most high, the Lord, brings them down and humiliates them. And we read through the language here that they're, um, effectively, the wording in both of them, it says they're thrown in a pit and buried with the slain. They do not, do not receive even a proper grave. And those around them are appalled at, their, at both their fall and the fact that their line is cut off forever. What they thought they had accomplished does not outlive them. Here in Isaiah 14, the I wills that we read in 13 to 14, I will ascend, I will set my throne, I will sit, I will ascend, I will make myself. We read all those in 13 through 14 and they are echoed and matched and answered in verses 22 to 23 when God starts speaking and he said, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts. I will cut off the Babylon uh, from Babylon the name and remnant descendants and posterity, declares the Lord, and I will make it a possession of the hedgehog, which there are other words there, but to me, hedgehog's kind of humorous. Um, I will make it a possession of the hedgehog in pools of water, and I will sweep it from or sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord. The I will of the king who thought himself so high and mighty to even replace God is answered by God with his own I wills in an answer of destruction. Both of these passages Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, both of these passages have caused many questions due to this language here of ascending and being like God. Um, And then Ezekiel 28, there's this language about like being a cherubim and um, different supernatural wording. Both of these passages have caused questions about whether or not they are still talking about the people that it says they're talking about. Is it still talking about the king of Babylon, Ezekiel? Are we still talking about the leader of Tyre? Or the question is also whether or not they're possibly talking about the fall of the devil as well. Isaiah 14, 22 to 23, however, does remind us that we are still talking about the king of Babylon. Because as I just read, it says, I will cut off from Babylon name and remnant and descendants and prosperity. So like we have all this supernatural language, but then it does bring it back in and tie it into an actual historical time. And then also in Ezekiel 28, we read this wording again that kind of brings it back into Tyre. But just as the judgment against Babylon in chapter 13 used cosmic language to show God's lordship over all people in all empires of all time, I think it is fair to say that the cosmic language being used here is also being used to show God's lordship over all the enemies of God. Through known Canaanite theological terms, such as I'm going to explain one here at the end of verse 13, it says, "...in the far reaches of the north." A more literal translation of that would be the remote parts or the apex, the peak 
of Zephon, which is Mount Zephon, which was the seat of the Canaanite gods. So again, this ascent language in Isaiah is saying, I will sit at the seat of the highest God in my religion. And then in Ezekiel 28, you have very similar language um, talking about sitting at the head of the waters, which for the theology being used in reference for that one, it's the same thing. The highest God sat at the fork of the rivers. So you have both of these instances, Isaiah and Ezekiel, both of the leaders equating themselves with the highest God. In both of these accounts, the kings of Babylon and the kings of Tyre are pictured as seeking to become the most high God in their arrogance and pride. The imagery of Ezekiel 28, 13 through 16, though, interestingly, has Genesis 1 through 3 imagery. It does not borrow from the theological language of the region or the area of that king. It actually borrows from biblical language. So I think there is an argument to be made that both of these texts work together to show the Lord's kingship and and lordship over all enemies. He will bring them down, whether they be human kings and empires, natural or supernatural, that he is Lord over all enemies. It is just like Isaiah and Ezekiel to blend the past, the present, the future, the natural, and the supernatural to say that God is Lord over all. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he alone is worthy of faith and trust. And just in case all this seems like really far out in the distance, what you have at the end of this section here in 1424 to 27 is a judgment against Assyria. Remember how we kind of skipped the Assyrian Empire and we jumped right to Babylon? Now, basically for the sake of the skeptic, we rein it back in and we talk about Assyria just for a couple verses. At the end of the oracle, you read, The Lord of hosts has sworn, I, as I have planned, so it shall be. As I have purposed, so it shall stand. Kind of reminds me of the Pharaoh in the Ten Commandments movie. Um, but you read this and you're like, okay, is he still talking about Babylon? Like, as I purposed, it will happen. As I plan, it will be. And then all of a sudden he says, I will break the Assyrian in my land. And on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their, his people's shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out, there's that hand language again, over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Just in case 13.1 through uh, 14.23 felt a little bit too distant and cosmic, This first oracle closes with a more imminent prophecy against Assyria. He will break Assyria to show that his purposes and plans against Babylon will come true. And in fact, what an appropriate closing here as we read 26 to 27. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out for all nations. Sounds like what Isaiah has been doing already in just chapter 13 and 14 here saying you can trust God with Assyria, you can trust God against Babylon, you can trust God, in fact, for all of time. 26 to 27 are a fitting conclusion, especially also as they use this imagery of the hand that is stretched out. His hand is stretched out in judgment against these empires and emperors that oppose him. But what's also interesting is that this stretched out hand Imagery is used constantly throughout the Bible, not just for judgment, but also for deliverance. And I think that brings us right back into 14, 1 to 2. And I know I'm going backwards here, but the reason I do that is this section 
no surprise if, if you read commentators about Isaiah, um, this section here, 13.1 through 14.27, is a chiasm, which means that the middle is actually what's most important. The first section, 13.1 through 16, the declaration of judgment on Assyria, or sorry, on Babylon, is matched in 14, the end, 24 to 27, um, is matched by you have judgment of Assyria at the end. So at the beginning, judgment against Babylon. At the end, judgment against Assyria to show that the judgment against Babylon will come true. And then in the middle of this section, you have um, the overthrow of Babylon in 13, 17 to 22, which is matched by the song about the overthrow of Babylon in the first part of chapter 14 in 3 to 23. Then at the very center, you have these tiny two sections, two verse section. At the very center, you have this promise of God's compassion and plan for his people. And that's at the center of the chiasm of this section. Because his hand is outstretched. It is outstretched to judge the prideful and the arrogant and those who reject God, whether they be kings, empires, or even his own people who reject him. But his hand is also outstretched in compassion and love to preserve and purify his people, to save and deliver those who put their trust in him. God gave the people the prophecy against Assyria so that they would see in their lifetime that he is worthy of their trust despite the threat and the power of Babylon or any worldly power. Babylon would take them into exile, but that is not where their story would end. God's plans will not fail. His purposes will succeed until the end of history when he rights all wrongs and sets his perfect king on the throne of David to rule forever. Trust and faith in God may not fix your circumstances and it may not deliver you from your current troubles. The people in Isaiah's day had to wait, even for this more near term, this prophecy against Assyria, they had to wait probably about 20 to 30 years from the time he gave that oracle to even the Assyrian one being fulfilled. They had to wait beyond their lifetime, in fact, beyond their grandchildren's lifetime, to when the prophecy against Babylon was fulfilled. So faith and trust in God may not fix your circumstances, may not deliver you from your current troubles. And trust and faith in God may not mean that people like or accept the message that you give or that you even feel successful. Remember that in chapter 6, Isaiah was basically commissioned to a ministry of failure. He was told that his ministry would just result in hard hearts. But trust and faith in God means that you see him rightly and see the world rightly. He is the Lord and judge of all who will hold us all accountable. He calls us all to live the best that we can for him where we are, whether or not this changes our circumstances. It is our job to live faithfully and obediently and his job to run the world. One day, he will hold all those accountable who reject him and live in sin. One day, he will right all wrongs and make all things new and perfect. One day, the pain and tears of this world will be healed and wiped away. Our faith, trust, and obedience shows that we believe this to be so. He didn't promise that it would be easy, but he did promise that he would be with us. In fact, the Emmanuel, this God with us promise that we saw in Isaiah 7, that was a prophecy of something that would happen 13 years later, we saw this Emmanuel promise of chapter 7. We see it turn into a greater 
Emmanuel promise in Matthew 1 and the Gospels, with not a baby who is named Emmanuel, but a baby, Jesus, who was Emmanuel, who was God with us. And this greater Emmanuel, this Jesus who was born as God with us, he promised in his great commission at the end of Matthew 28 when he said, Behold, I am with you. You can read that, by the way, as Emmanuel. Behold, Emmanuel, always. I am with you always to the end of the age. And he sends his Holy Spirit to those who believe as a guarantee or a down payment for our future hope and inheritance. Because the point being made in Isaiah 13 through 35 is that this hope that we have is not a wishful hope. It is a sure hope. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your faithfulness, for the fact that we can trust you, for the fact that you have shown throughout history that you are Lord of all, and that you have given us the end of the story and have told us that living Trusting in you, loyal to you as we love you and love others, that that is the way that our creator has designed us to live. And that whether or not this changes our current circumstances, you have promised you are with us and you see that one day when everything is made right, that you will remember and that you will bring your people to yourself. I pray all this in your name. Amen.